and welcome to another episode of Radio Zaddy, um, the podcast for your queer fix this week. I'm Hannah Bestwick and I'm here as always with the wonderful, talented... Daisy Thurston-Gent. Daisy. Hey Hannah. How are you doing? I'm doing alright, thank you. Uh, what's this What's this podcast about? Um, this is a podcast where Daisy and I will learn something new each week and tell each other about that. Now this is going to be primarily something to do with queerness. It might be a, a topic where we think it might be some queerness hidden or a queer person in there, influential. Or it might just be something that we know is queer but we never took the time to research it before and we want to get a bit more knowledge. Now it's just a little bit of an introduction mainly. Um, you can go away, do more research if you want, but every day, every Every day, every, every episode, we want to expand our world of queer knowledge. And with that said, how are you doing? Good. I'm doing all right, thank you. Yeah, it's uh, we're having a bit of a late summer, which is nice. Yeah, well, it did go away for a while, and then we had a sort of a touch of summer uh, up until now, a smidge, <laughs> a, a smidge brush of summer, loads of rain, and now it's been summer again, um, which is actually really lovely. Um, spending lots of time in the garden. Yeah, Hannah's been. Hannah is always down down the garden uh, in the shed. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I just feel like Fulfilling an queer, old man in like a, a sitcom where there's just like the old man is never in the house. It's just only outside in the shed, doing shed business. Do you know who you remind me of? Uh, you remind me of Geppetto. Is his name? <laughs> in hey. a really endearing way. Uh, it's, I think it's the leather, See. the leather um, well, the apron. apron. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's to stop myself burning myself and with the various blowtorches. Just soldering in the shed, you know, late at night. If you ever can't find Hannah, it's because Hannah's down the bottom of the garden in, in the leather... Wow, that's... Uh... Wow. In the leather room? No, no. no. Uh, in the leather apron, um, you know, hammering away and soldering, like making something. rings. Yeah, I'm not going to... I'm not going to contest that. <laughs> but, anyway, actually, I Puppets. know... Yeah. I'm I'll going find first this week, so I'm you going to move swiftly first. on from me in my apron. Yeah, I rambled quite a lot last week. Um, no, it was great. It was a really great episode. I've um, always been interested in drag kings. I think it's really great. Um, it's a great performance art as well as like a, a form of expression. But you know, there's so many things to research all the time. I just never, you know, I've never yeah, we can't into and it. we can't dwell on the past. It's time for a new day, a new dawn, a new day, and so I've got something for you. Now, this is like I mean, I've, I've mentioned it in passing i think i'm gonna say so what i'm gonna be talking to you today uh, about is um so i've i've mentioned it before in uh, what kind of terms not so kind terms maybe some judgment has come in probably mm -hmm. some judgment has come in but today i'm gonna be talking to you about furries <gasps> okay yeah okay so, <laughs> okay yeah like i said i've just not always been uh the kindest i've not always had the kindest thoughts or the most open-minded open or or even necessarily accurate thoughts, as I have found out, about furries and their motivations. And so, and you know, this is mostly down to um, the misconception that being a furry is all about sex and sexuality. And I'm quite a prude. Beyond my own sexuality and my relationship with my partner or whatever, I don't really want to know. I don't really care. Okay, so it was... That that kept me from actually uh -huh, looking into uh -huh. it further. Also, I do a lot of research on my work laptop, so I didn't want to be like furries <laughs> on my work laptop. What is a furry? Yeah. Don't want to get a message from HR being like, "Are you okay?" <laughs> um, yeah, so you're reading into this a lot. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And yeah, like I said, I thought it was a fetish, and so I was like, "That's fine for you over there, away from me." But I feel like maybe over the years I might have matured a little bit. Perhaps, and sometime in some way, maybe I feel slightly more ready to tackle this subject, a bit braver, perhaps, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to go into the wild frontier. Yeah, it's certainly part of um, part of the scene and and the community and 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 history. So we should yeah. absolutely. Make I found some out some really interesting things. Like, what do you know about furries? Let's start with that because you seem to have a bit of recognition. I rec yeah, I recognize um, yeah, I recognize the the term. I sort of yeah, I guess I have in my head uh, a picture of. Uh, what a furry would would sort of dress like, which is in a possibly a fur suit, as yeah, like, like a full suit, an big, yeah, big like wolf head or rabbit head, sort of like the bunny from um, Donnie Darko. That's sort of okay, what I imagine, yeah, just yeah. like less terrifying, maybe more terrifying. I don't Who know. Who knows? Depends on uh, what area, I guess, because some people do do like the um, lighting, horror themes yeah. or whatever. Okay, the lighting, okay. yeah, but um, very much like very kind of cartoonized, um, yeah caricatured like very much i don't know i've seen them be very a bit more kind of sweet looking but just generally very 
very big very yeah, yeah. A bit like larger than life sort of thing yeah yeah quickly i'm going to tell you my sources today so i read an article on women's health called nine facts about furries that will totally change the way you think about them by ariel sicklay by ariel on women's health dot uh, women's health mad.com one on psychology today um what's the deal with furries with a de- what a decade of research reveals about a misunderstood subculture by hal herzog i've read some of the pages not just one on furscience.com mm. and uh, an article called uh, meet the most famous furry in the world uh, by steph Kozar, uh, which is on sci-fi wire sci-fi.com and a few other articles wikipedias and things like that um, including some cora discussion Right. And some Reddit pages. Right, let's get going. So, um, depending on the media that you consume, you may uh, you may think of furries as the people that dress up, that think they're animals, or that just dress up as animals, or have a, like a fetish for being an animal, or f- animal fur, that sort of thing. Uh, you know, and, and mainly the things that you will have heard will be about sex, because that's the thing that people like to make fun of. Um, and it's not really the truth. Basically, the fur fandom is a fan base of people who are interested in, and fans of anthropomorphic animal characters. These, they have uh, human personalities and characteristics. So, like, you know, like in Lion King, the lions talk, they have human personalities and mannerisms and all that. Mm-hmm. And so any animal star in, like, a Disney film or Pixar or things like that will usually be anthropomorphized, which okay. is, like, to make it human-like. And furries are just fans of that style of character, okay? I guess this could be equated to the fact that... So I wrote my master's dissertation on robot characters in film. Mm-hmm. And I think robots in film are really, really cool. And so that would be, that might make be like, if you were to translate the classifications, I'd be like a Roby or something, you know? <laughs> I don't think that's a thing, but it's the same thing where you... Fo- right, right. But with Whereas robots like, and AI in film, they are humanised in a way yeah. that robots aren't in yeah, real life, you yeah. know? Whereas, like, Scar in The Lion King is delightfully oh charming. Oh my God, he's so fucking camp. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so charming. Uh, so, yes, furries are fans. Fans of animal characters which are imbued with human personalities, habits, and are therefore relatable, you know, as people. Plus, ultimately and of interest to the podcast, furries are very queer as a community. Mm. And that's why I'm going to talk about them. I'm not necessarily going to specifically talk about the queerness, but because they are very queer as a community, I'm going to talk about them. Uh, As a community, furries are about seven times more likely than the general population to identify as transgender, and about five times more likely than the general population to identify as exclusively homosexual. And then there's people in between um, that are bi and and, um, pan and things like that. So Mm. this is some research done by Fur Science, uh, a poll of their members and things like that, which I think is is probably where you're going to get some of the most honest answers, to be honest, Um, rather than an external organisation coming in and inspecting you with a magnifying glass. Are you a furry? Yeah, exactly. But with that, you know, the the queerness, about 84% identify as male. So it's not not particularly gender diverse and 13% as female, but only 66.6% um, identify are cisgendered males. Okay. Okay. Yes. One other thing is that eight, almost 84% are white. Okay. So it's not very um, ethnically diverse either. Okay. And again, that's from fursciencecom But given this po- uh, composition, the furry fandom is actually really well known for being very inclusive of very inclusive and embraces the norm of being welcoming and non-judgmental. Okay. Um, th- and the media routinely mischaracterizes furries as fetishists mm. or as psychologically dysfunctional people. You know, awkward nerdy types who dislike themselves so much that they want to live through this animal persona. But these misconceptions are misconceptions. They're false. Born often out of a lack of understanding about what furries do as a group you know Mm. there's research done by courtney plant who is a professor of psychology at bishop's university she found that furries are just as happy as non-furries just as satisfied with life have healthy functional relationships with their partners and are no more likely to be on antidepressants or anti-anxiety drugs than any other member of the general population so it seems like it's just it's not um born out of some illness yeah right we have to shift our conception if we've got a problem yeah exactly and as well as being as well as the well-known dressing up in uh, the fursuits, as they're called, which is, you know, like a mascot suit or a mm. Mickey Mouse suit that they wear in Disneyland. Those are all, you could say, fursuits. Uh, it's just a costume. It's just a costume for a particular character, and just because it's an animal, it will be furry, therefore a fursuit. Mm-hmm. Other than fursuits, you know, there's 
lots of artists in the furry community. Um, people like to, when they create a fursona, which I'll get onto later, <laughs> they like to have a drawn rendition of that. Okay. And not everyone is an artist, yeah. so they will commission their own character to be drawn. They also like have sp the specific games that have furry characters. Uh, lots of people write fan fiction okay. based on the films they like, things like that. So it's it's kind of it's different but similar to um, to kind of cosplay. Um, yes. Okay. Yes, it is. It is. It is different. The same, but different to cosplay to um, anybody that writes like fanfic for yeah. their fandom, like Harry Potter stuff and you it know uh, Sherlock sort of. Holmes things. Like people imagine themselves in it or imagine their own versions of stories within that universe. And apparently, according to Psychology Today article that I, the Psychology Today article I was reading, only about 20 percent of furries actually dress up in the fursuits. Okay, so most okay. people are just interested in draw or watch movies or whatever. Majority of people don't maybe because of the lack of interest maybe because of the stigma but also from my research fursuits are fucking expensive apparently <laughs> apparently it's absolutely insane and um the the people who make fursuits and do person because they're all commissioned oh they've capitalized on they it. make so much money oh my god so much money uh, and actually on the subject of art creativity um Humour. There's an artist that I enjoy called uh, Kat Swensky who makes a comic series which is called Behind the GIF. Okay, she'll take a GIF of like an animal that's got itself in a really stupid, weird situation, and come up with a series of panels that will show how it got up to that point. Right. Okay. So um, there's one that I like. I quickly went to get an example. There's one of a cartoons of this deer talking on the phone being like no no they haven't got anything here um blah 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 and then the next panel is a gif of a deer walking around the supermarket and you're like why is there a deer there but she said it's because she said buy something and that is anthropomorphizing the animal mm -hmm. that could be considered furry art okay okay yeah i do encourage you to look that up um so would any any kind of cartoon anthropomorphized character be considered within that or could be kind of claimed in that Yes, anything that's like uh, a little a little person, but yeah. it looks like an animal. Definitely, the thing with cat. Um, sorry, I forgot her name. Svensky. Yeah. Um, is that they? There's a. Very, it has a very particular style of art where the facial expressions are very human. Okay. 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 Sort of like Bojack Horseman. Yeah. Maybe if I. I've got her up. Okay. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, okay, so I mentioned fursonas earlier. I assume you can probably put together that is furry and persona yes. put together, fursona. And that's where some of the confusion comes in. Like, what, why would people invent a fursona? It's like an avatar, mm -hmm. okay? And it's kind of how a lot of people, they use it to interact with a community online. And it's just, yeah, it's, it's often used as a way to interact with the community online, either pretending you'll be that person, or it's just like, you know, this is... you put a skin on your Minecraft um, Steve and just be like, I want it, like I put a BMO from Adventure Time one on my Minecraft Steve yeah. because I think it's fun. You might just embellish that and give it a different colour, that sort of thing. You might not necessarily go into all the personalities, but yeah. some people do when you get like a fact sheet about your, your first owner that you can then use to engage in like probably uh, like um, role-playing games, things like that. Yeah. You might create a character for yourself who is you as an anthropomorphic animal or a sort of heightened version of you or a completely different version of yourself as this specific character with outfits. You know, the vast majority mm. of furries do have a, a fursona and this gives them a lot of freedom. It gives a lot of freedom to recreate yourself online, you know. Um, yeah. I know when I was younger and I was still trying to work out who I was, I would go on to like chat forums and just like talk like a completely different person. Mm. Didn't have an avatar or anything like that. I just was able to, behind the guise of being on the internet, be a different person if I wanted to, you know, stronger, yeah, yeah. more confident. Like I, I used to go and, and be very confident in saying that I was gay to people online yeah. and I hadn't told anyone in person in real life yet, you see. That sort of thing. And this reconceptualizes themselves, especially, like, with regards to age, yeah, but also gender, personality, yeah, and even definitely. physical traits. You can make yourself taller if you want, mate. <laughs> and research has shown that most furries do create a fursona which represents similar but idealised versions of themselves. Okay, so it's me but super confident, or it's me but openly gay. Yeah. It's me but cool. Like a sexy puma. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and um, they many furries do report that over time, their own self-concept tends to become more like that of the fursona i.e the more idealized version of the self okay and the psychology today article was saying that this may be due to the fact that over time 
as you're interacting with people as this idealized version of yourself mm. it validates the idealized version and helps you to uh, to internalize it as an actual part of yourself okay that's interesting yeah that's really cool yeah exactly and it's a kind of added safety for some people who want to explore like gender or sexuality through that anthropomorphic animal their fursona so if you're say for example a young trans guy you might go online and create a fursona that is a cis male or an openly trans fursona and you talk about it confidently and um, other people interact with you in a way that is comfortable with that yeah. representation yeah, of yeah, you yeah. and is okay with it and validates it and then that helps you to process it as part of yourself and accept it or to see well maybe that doesn't work for me so maybe I'm going to try something non-binary or you know that sort of thing it gives you a little bit of, of safety and distance because it's you're not going up to someone you know in real life and being like I am this because you get to test it out online first through a character Okay. And a lot of people assume that that's not normal to do, but it is very normal. It's exactly like if you were to play Sims loads, you might make a Sim a particular way each yeah. time, let's say, or you might have go-to choices for characters in a video game. You might always want them to have a certain hair colour or like certain traits. Maybe you always make them hyper-masculine or something like that. Mm. And there's also, um, you know, when you make a D&D &D character that yeah. you use across campaigns, that's like a and d D sona, a mm, no, we'll come Dun back to that. Dun sona, Dungeona. Dungeona. Wow, <laughs> uh, that was terrible. Sorry. Um, yeah, it's a character that you play as across platforms, right? Yeah. It's a form of self-expression, and some people dress as their D and D characters, and some people dress up as not idealized but like exaggerated versions of parts mm. of themselves we talked about drag last week you know um it can be also a performance art yeah yeah it's just it is a kind of self-expression but also when you dress up that's a performance mm -hmm. and um there are some people that make a whole thing of it there's one um famous semi-famous furry that i heard about when i lived in bristol called the red baron uh listener chris and i went to see the the furry walk in bristol and the Red Baron is a person who lives uh, not on mainland England, I think it's in Jersey, but comes to Bristol for um, the furry conventions. And they're an amazing, they're like a really good pilot. And okay. they dress up as this male, like red fox thing who's like kind of suave and cool. Uh -huh, uh -huh. You know, you can kind of see that also translating to being a drag act. Yeah, but yeah, it's yeah. a fursona. And so it's, yeah. And um, they're quite funny. I guess we'll clarify that um, some people think that furries identify as the animal character that they make yep. i mentioned there before about like um if you're trying to explore a part of your identity you might use a persona online um in this case a fursona but that's not actually true so um courtney plant who i mentioned before the psychologist from bishop's Uni university conducted some research that seemed to show that although about a third of furries don't feel totally human mm. it's not the same thing as thinking that you are a wolf spirit in a human body Okay, and that's apparently something which is referred to as being a, a terrian. Okay, and that's where your self, your sense of self includes non-human animals. So you might think that you are some way an animal trapped inside a person's body. Right. Um, and more colloquially, some people call that other kin. Okay. Okay, most, most furries don't identify as actual animals. Um, but non-human? Non-human, but I guess like there's no non-human is such a broad, I guess slightly unhelpful classification yeah. because what could that be? That could be like, oh, I feel slightly alien, or like, well, actually, I just think that humans are animals because we are animals and we evolved the same way. Or it could be like people have othered me so much I don't feel involved in this world. Mm. You know, there's lots of different way that's ways that could be read. But, yeah, I'm a cabinet. Um, the Psychology Today article uh, does point out that... Uh, sorry, this is a, a point that I thought was really interesting. Because the person who wrote it does a lot of research around how people relate to animals in their lives. Mm -hmm. you know, pets, livestock, things like that. The wild, wildlife, zoos. And the article points out that because furries spend so much time drawing anthropomorphised animals and imagining animals with human like consciousness they are more likely than non-furries to oppose the use of animals for commercial or research purposes okay which is very interesting yeah. so i guess we're going to talk about the sex because <laughs> we all know that furry erotica exists don't we yes yeah good <laughs> right um i've spent a lot of time on the internet uh i've seen furry porn um mostly drawn porn out there yeah, I, I, used to, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. I used to spend a lot of time on reddit and sometimes you just can't not see things yep <laughs> and by all means not the worst thing i've seen 
on Reddit. Uh, and like everything everywhere, every single fandom in the world, there is a porn version of it. Okay, there is porn of everything. It's rule 34. Even the Women's Health article points out that car enthusiasts will have pictures of cars on their wall with nude women on the hood of the car, and that's basically car porn. Yeah. You're just, it's just barely disguised, isn't it? So it's not sort of cars with kind of human... It's not cars with titties, like but there's titties and... on the car. Right, okay. So it's not cars like doing it with their exhaust pipes. Yeah, no. Although some people I'm do sure that, that does exist. Oh, yeah. I mean, have you not spent a late night watching um, documentaries on Channel 4? Uh, I watched a no. whole thing about people who fall in love with, like, fairground rides. There was a lady that was, like, humping a fence. Uh, it was about me and about six other people. We then watched a, a whole uh, documentary about this guy who has a kind of fursona, which is Spot, but he lives his kind of everyday life as this dog. And then he went to this big convention, and then we watched one about men who have sex with dolls, like those fake dolls, the real dolls. And Yeah, the possibilities like, are endless it was, when it comes to It was like 2am, <laughs> we were like, about... why are we watching this? But you end up in some places, and you don't know why. So, where was I? You know, fan fiction also usually results in erotica mm -hmm. porn smut some might say 50 shades of gray was apparently a smutty twilight fan fiction uh -huh. you know and twilight was also a long uh three book pledge to not have sex before marriage and then it birthed 50 shades of gray the completely opposite thing to that <laughs> when people love their fictional universe and their interest is not just limited to the face value people will write additional non-canonical adventures with their favorite characters and that will almost almost every story has romance yeah. that anybody ever writes and sometimes that leads to sex especially if you're the creator of your own little universe that you've written about and then some people might commission that into drawings things like that you know yeah. and quite often you know fanfic and things like that always end in queer sex because there's barely any of it in the fictional universe so you know you get uh, Harry Potter and Draco Bellatrix and Hermione is off. It was sung about by May Martin on the Russell Howard Good News Show. I don't know if you remember <laughs> that one. It was a very good one. Uh, and Princess Marceline, uh, sorry, Marceline the Vampire Queen and Princess Bubblegum in Adventure Time are yep. are canonically together. But before the final episode, it wasn't confirmed, so it just existed in fanfic mm -hmm. and in drawn representations. Exactly the same for furry furry art. Um, the fandom grows up, yeah. and then that's that. Why would the furry fandom be any different to any other one? And there's a lot of squeamishness about porn from me, as you might hear from me talking about this, uh, and especially drawn porn, you know? There's a whole, like, history of drawing erotic art and things like that, yeah, and yeah, yeah. Um, hentai and things like that, and people get awkward and uncomfortable discussing that because it's not what they're used to, or it seems foreign or weird or, I don't know, in some way deviant. Yeah than other forms of porn. I was going to say deviant art has exactly. to come up. <laughs> deviant art, right? That's where a lot of it existed back but in a the lot, day. You know, even um, you know, Charles Darwin used to include um, erotic art in um, in his collections and, you know, studying, you know, and that's that's science 101. Like, yeah. Yeah, he animals went, fuck all They the do, time. but he would also include um, I went to an exhibition um, at the Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge and they had a whole it was a it was a Darwin exhibition, but it was uh, there was a whole um, sort of collection uh, room dedicated to a lot of uh, things behind velvet curtains um, and uh, artwork. And there was uh, one particular image uh, stayed with me. Uh, it was a, a woman, uh, a giant koi carp going down on her. Oh, gosh. And that was, um, I was like, well, I don't know what to do with that, but I've seen it now and I will no never forget. Yeah, now I've. Now that's in my that. brain, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Charles Darwin. Did you commission this? <laughs> That was his. No, I don't know. Oh, where okay, it, came from. I was it, like, was, it was included in the, what the um, fuck? whoever curated it. Whether it came from, you know, his. I, it must be shown alongside the coin like carp going know. down on the attractive woman. Yes. Yeah. That was my Charles Darwin impression. Um, <coughs> it was really good. Yeah, my dying wish is for Koi Carp uh, to be included next to uh, all these monkey skulls. Thank you very much. Love it. Charlie Love it. D. Charlie D. XOXO. Gossip girl. <laughs> Back to you. Um, I loved that, though. That was great. Because, actually, I don't know if you've proved or disproved my point, because some people think that furry art is like bestiality, you know, because okay. it's animals, right? But the characters, even if they're animals, will be... Human as we've said, like, anthropomorphized, yeah. they'll have like uh, a feet, a woman, a human woman's body. Yeah. But it's also like has claws and like a wolf head. But there'll mm. be titties. Yeah. And there'll be a vagina that looks very human. 
So the idea is that it is still people, yeah. but yeah, they're yeah. in these fursonas, right? It's not about fucking sheep in a field or something like that. It's not that. Why are people not uh, more accepting of body hair then? You know. If they... Well, exactly. <laughs> if they're into fursonas, you can be into a, a very hairy lady. Yeah. Because of that, because of the misconceptions, because of just looking at any porn that isn't exactly what you're into is off-putting. Um, for some people, you know, most non-furries don't want to don't want to talk about it, don't want to bring it up. But despite that, being a furry doesn't seem to be actually just about the erotica. It's a, that's a side product, yeah. just an offshoot from an interest in a p- uh, particular area of art and film or yeah. whatever, you know. And that happens everywhere. Yeah. And it's just uh, being a furry is just a combination of interests in anthropomorphized animals. Yeah. The wherever of- there is anything, there will be sex there just will be you just like it's all like that is such a huge driver for most people in their life that it's just going to come up the rest of being a furry seems to be about Mm self-expression having fun fun through fantasy creativity and like i mentioned earlier people don't always dress up in their fursona expensive or stigma how much yeah how much do the suits do i i i couldn't say i could it's wildly varying so people will often like buy their suit piece by piece like the head first and then the hands and then the feet or i like i couldn't find yeah uh, final price well you know what i didn't i didn't look i think i would need to like commission a specific thing because it also depends on how many colors you're using Mm. um like how big it needs to be uh, what kind of animal it is you know if you're going to be uh, let's say a basic wolf in all one color that's going to be one different price to being if your persona is a dragon <gasps> yeah. in like 10 colors with a huge tail it's going to be different yeah it's going to escalate it's yeah they're not all wolves approximately 60 percent of furries feel that there's prejudice against them from being furries who aren't openly uh, don't openly talk about their interests and about 40 percent felt that being a furry was not socially acceptable that's from mm. fursciencecom again. Yes. So I'll conclude this with a cheesy. Maybe I'll con- I'll pre pre conclude this with a cheesy closing statement from the Psychology Today article, which I think is fair but also is cliche. So perhaps the most fascinating th- fascinating thing that a decade of research on furries can tell us is that in the end, furries are no different from anybody else. They have the same need to belong, need to have a positive and distinct sense of self, and need for self expression. Yeah. And that was my best Psychology Today voice. Thank you, Psychology Today. I know. Because, like, that is totally uh, totally true. Yeah. Cliché as it is, it is totally true. But it also, in some way, makes it sound like furries are a really weird species rather than just, like, the people that you work with or your friends with that just yeah. won't tell you that they're a furry, and that's fine. Over half of, of people who are, who are furries have been bullied. Um, yeah. And so, to be honest, I'm going to be trying to look at my furry fellows uh, with a new... Uh, with new view and more understanding after this, um, yeah, I think I, I think I understand it a bit more now. Like I was icked out a little bit before. That was because I was just, I don't know, being pre creeping myself out one without even knowing what was going on. Mm. Yeah, we got to remain open minded and learn. Yeah, knowledge is uh, a way of yeah destigmatizing. Yeah. And it's things. odd that it's like so stigmatized to be a furry when almost everybody you meet will ask you what Harry Potter house you're in. Yeah, yeah, you're so right. And yeah. that is... Normalised. That's normalised. <laughs> and so nerdy and so lame. Yeah. And I love it, but that's normalised because most people like it, you know? Mm. Oh, here, okay. So I tried looking up some famous furries, because I was like, I want to tell Daisy about some famous furries. But there's some not very helpful articles out there. So I read one article called Five Famous People You Didn't Know Were Closet Furries, which is by Ito Kowalski. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kowalski on Odyssey. Um, to be fair, they are a satir- They seem to be a satirical writer. I think made some jokes that Nikola Tesla was a furry, and that Hitler was a furry, and that Mark Zuckerberg was a furry, and then had photoshopped pictures of them as furries. Okay. And I was like, hey, not incredibly helpful. This, I don't think this is true. Um, and um, so then I found some actual articles. Uh, one of the reportedly most famous furries is a YouTuber called Vix or Rika, and uh, she said that being a furry has helped to come out of, has helped me come out of my shell and overcome social fears. It's helped me practice and get better at art, and it's introduced me to some extremely wonderful people that I'm glad to call my friends. Yay. That was the sci-fi article by Steph Cosa, and um, they just they do a lot of YouTubing, classic YouTuber stuff, trying things out, trying swimming in a fursuit, things like mm. that. But on Cora, I found some fun Discord about different furries uh, who are famous for 
being furries, not necessarily famous for other things, and then being confirmed furries. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so there's Uncle Cage. Uh, he's a biomedical scientist, an extremely talented and very well spoken and an underrepresented man. He's got a PhD in chemistry, uh, and he's the organizer of Anthrocon, which is the second largest furry convention in the world. Okay. Damn Dog Games is a YouTuber who does uh, Let's Play. Uh, run-throughs where you just you play along with the game they give their commentary their jokes whatever their personality is added to the game okay. they're one of the best furry let's players and a good vlogger uh but it's um so is would they play uh would are there specific kind of gameplay that is particular to furries or would it be sort of any game so as he plays games as like as a furry yeah. he okay. is a furry character playing the games in the same way that you put people in front of a camera, they become a different person, let's say, and they're yep. like, hey, blah, 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 oh, yeah. I'm this guy. He does his YouTubing as uh, Damn Dog. I'm not actually sure, it doesn't say, sorry, I didn't get his actual character name. But Damn Dog Games, he does Let's Plays with uh, as his character. Bit right. sexual, though, apparently, so it's not for everyone. And then, Violent J of the Insane Clown Posse is a furry. Okay, so his daughter got really interested in furry fandom and decided to create her own fursona. And so he was like, hey, I want to spend time with my daughter and make sure that whatever, if there is something creepy going on here, I'm there to stop it. Yeah. And then so he has his own fursona, but his fursuit head has the same markings as the makeup that he wears on stage. So he wears like this, like kind of terrifying clown makeup with yeah, these yeah, big yeah. arched, uh, big black arches above his eyebrows. With a black line yeah, going yeah, yeah. down across his eyes, and then his fursuit is like an angry-looking wolf with the same markings, arches over the eyebrows going down. And then his daughter has this very sweet, um, uh, just fursona, and so he's there with his arms crossed, looking really mad. And she's like, "Hey, fun!" It's a really cute juxtaposition. Yeah, yeah. And then he, you know, it's the same markings that he goes on stage to rap about, like torturing and killing people. But then he's like got a fursona. Uh, I've talked about the Red Baron already. They actually, um, the Red Baron is actually a really talented animator. Sorry, I forgot to mention that. And works on things like Sean the Sheep movie. Um, okay. A stop motion animator, really cool. <laughs> Still connected to uh, sheep and animals. Sheep and animals, but connected to Bristol. which is Gromit? I mean... Oh, Gromit. But when I read that Quora article with those, like, list of famous uh, furries, the immediate next article said... Uh, my 18 year old daughter is obsessed with furry animals how do i make her get rid of this embarrassing hobby i am not a fur and do not want to be will never be i am a straight normie and then there was like discussion of that i was like oh come on mate <laughs> like, chill <laughs> uh yeah i guess i guess that's it i've talked for quite a while that was your introduction Thank to you. furries i guess the only furry i thought i knew about before was have you watched she-ra on um on netflix no so i think so Catra is, uh, yeah, a damn sexy kitty cat lady thing. Um, and so that's, I'm going to do this. So I just pulled up a whole bunch of, yeah, a whole bunch of articles about that, which I'm going to research in my own time. Nice. <laughs> Maybe well report back to you next time. Do, do indeed. I read, I read an article um, that I didn't end up using about uh, like the most influential characters or films okay. for furries. And that includes like Space Jam yeah. and Zootopia Things like that, where it's it's really they're really basically people yeah. like dressed up as animals, rather than in the Lion King, where they are animals with human personalities. Mm. If that makes sense, because in Zootopia they're all like standing up on two legs and walking. So is that around. the distinction? It has it's an animal with human. No, no, no. There's not a distinction. Okay. Um, but they are more. I think they're probably they were listed as more influential okay. because there was more humanness to them, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. And also there were cult films and things like that. Yeah, and yeah. then there was a couple in there that I'd never, never, ever heard of, but were like pinup girls, okay. but with like cat ears, but also cartoons. And I was like, this is just raunchy. What yeah. am I doing here? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. well, there we go. <laughs> Found your way in. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, thank you. I think, um, yeah, it's good to, yeah, stay open. And I didn't, I have never researched um, furries, so I, yeah, uh, I don't thank think you very have. much for doing the doing the legwork. That is okay. I um, when I said I went to the furry walk in Bristol, so there's this, uh, what I think it's monthly. Every once every month on some certain date, the people in Bristol that have fur suits will like go on a walk around town and then go mm. to the pub afterwards and I wanted That's to go nice. and see the people in the suits <laughs> but I wanted to see what people looked like in real life in their fursuits as mentioned previously probably not for the kindest reasons mm. 
But with that on my mind, I was like, you know what? I'm going to actually try and find out. Yeah, I'm going to repent. What this is about. Yeah, yeah. repent and I am sorry. Hannah's public announcement yeah, to the, the apology tour. <laughs> <laughs> the apology tour. So, uh, in the last episode, I talked quite uh, a bit, uh, quite in depth about uh, Western drag king history. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so while I was kind of, while it was fresh in my mind, I just wanted to kind of start um, this segment with uh, a quote from uh, Judith Halberstam uh, from her book Drag Kings Queer Masculinities in Focus yes uh, which I think provides quite a neat little definition of what a drag queen, uh, king does um, that I maybe you know just to kind of summarise from the last episode a performer who pinpoints and exploits the often obscured theatricality of masculinity mm. uh, and she goes on to say uh, the drag king can be male or female she can be transgendered she can be butch or femme uh, the drag king might uh, might make no distinction between her offstage and on stage persona, or she might make an absolute distinction. Uh, she might say they bleed into each other in unpredictable and uncontrollable ways. Um, so, if you're affected by any of uh, the nonsense online about oh. who is who isn't who isn't a drag king, a drag queen, like yeah, it's a load of bollocks. It's just about the uh, the art of um, yeah, impersonating masculinity. Yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, so just nip that in the bud. Yeah, so I'd like to jump kind of back into uh, my research uh, on the ancient art of drag kinging, yes. uh, if I may, and just take things like right back to the uh, the first post on the timeline um, of dragkinghistory.com. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to the first presentation of male impersonation ever recorded. Okay. So all the way back. In the way, way back machine. In the way, way back machine. So this information was uh, collated by uh, drag king Moby Dick. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I mentioned in the last episode, uh, yeah, it's an incredible resource. Yeah, very comprehensive timeline um, from kind of ancient theatre all the way to, you know, all the way up to modern drag kings on, uh, you know, the scene today. The first presentation of male impersonation, which is quite a mouthful, uh, happened a very long time ago, Hannah. And How long ago? I'm talking way back. So uh, these, uh, here's the years, 618 to 907, which, I mean, 618 sounds a bit like a cool AD? time. Uh, yep, so... 18, okay, so only 600 years... Okay, okay, wait, 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 1,400 years ago? Yes, so okay. it's... But basically, it's not a new phenomenon. So these yeah. performances of male impersonation took place in the Chinese opera during the Tang Dynasty. Wow. Okay? And so you've got to imagine that it was going on for a long time before it got to the Chinese opera, right? <laughs> yeah, they they had opera. So, uh, yeah, the the Tang Dynasty had, um, yeah, had opera... Uh, obviously, Chinese opera does predate this particular dynasty, but um, it wasn't until like this period, under uh, the em- Emperor Xuanzong, uh, where they they just got their shit together. Basically, yeah, it yeah. became a lot more you know organized mm-hmm, as an art mm-hmm, form, mm-hmm. Um, and it was weaving together a few popular styles of the time, including um, folk songs and traditional dance, uh, into kind of one show-stopping performance for the stage. And research of this period include cit- the first citations of women playing male roles. Nice. So that's when we've got, yep, 618, let's let's go, let's go. Uh, so during his reign, uh, the emperor, Xuanzong, uh, founded uh, Luoyang, uh, or the Pear Garden, mm-hmm. which uh, is essentially the first drama school, um, yeah. <laughs> first drama school in Chinese history, which uh, trained uh, musicians, dancers, and actors. And performances would take place in kind of royal courts and theatres, uh, basically for the emperor's personal enjoyment. Yeah. So, yeah, original kind of, I'm going to commission uh, all my favourite kind of things, which is flamboyant theatre and, and dance. Yeah. Gotta have it. So, performance performances of uh, The Butterfly Lovers, which is uh, one of China's oldest uh, folk tales, um, can be traced back to this period in the Tang Dynasty. Um, and... Uh, it's a classic romantic tragedy, often likened to Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. So e- even though this story actually predates old Will's version by about a thousand years, basically. Yeah. So it's a tale of two lovers, man and woman, where the uh, the woman dressed uh, dresses in men's clothing as a disguise in order to attend some scholarly classes, which is where the pair meet and gradually fall in love. After the reveal, they rejoice in that they you know lo- no longer have to be just classmates, and their love is real and valid. <laughs> Thank God, because uh, she's actually a woman, yay! yay um, that's great. <laughs> before a uh, kind of prearranged marriage kind of trips them up, um, because oh obviously she's arranged to be married elsewhere. Mm. Doesn't matter that she's fallen in love with uh, one of her nerdy she's friends. She's spoken for. Yeah, she's spoken else. for. Yeah. So uh, you know that kind of the usual double death sequence happens. One falls ill, the other falls into his grave. You know they both become butterflies. Standard 
standard, yeah, standard story. butterfly transformation, death in graveyard thing. Exactly, yeah. 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 So Shakespeare sort of admittedly kind of omitted a bit of that. Uh, a couple of those he sections. He has less butterflies. So yeah, I'm his version is a bit, that one. Yeah, a bit tame <laughs> in comparison. Uh, but so, yeah, the stories have a lot of similar um, themes. Anyway, the story, this particular story, The Butterfly uh, Lovers, uh, is still hugely popular in Chinese um, opera even today. Um, and it still holds uh, this male impersonation uh, very much at the heart of the performance. Yeah. Um. It, it was very accepted. It was. It was known that it was a. It would be a woman dressed in men's clothing, um, performing the yes. role. Yes. So male impersonation was not only reflected in the kind of physical um, attire and costume worn by the performers, but also in their kind of virtual disguises that they adopted in their kind of operatic singing and vocal range. So. Yeah, switching gender roles for the sake of performance was quite common during the Tang Dynasty. Even if you know, even if there were mixed casts and there were like men available, they would often choose women to play those roles. Um, and they'd be, you know, it it wasn't like an accident. It wasn't like oh, we've run out of young boys. It was like they they deliberately made these decisions for comedic effect or just in general. Yeah, so I mean, there's a few reasons. Not for comedic effect. More, um, yeah, it's a bit more kind of nuanced than that. Mm. Um, but it was basically, it was very accepted for a brief period of time. And this could be kind of attributed to uh, the legacy of Empress uh, Wu Zetan, who reigned between 690 and 704. And Wu was uh, China, China's one and only female leader. Okay. Um, so despite kind of controversy over her gender, um, she was hugely successful ruler and highly regarded for her own artistic qualities um, and kind of public speaking abilities. So it was already yeah. quite common for you know strong powerful articulate women to be in existence uh, about allowed allowed she learnt to um empress Wu like learnt to read uh, write play music um all from quite an early age um encouraged by her her father her intellectualism meant that she was extremely popular mm. and so she was a big advocate for gender equality and during her reign she installed instilled uh, buddhism as the uh, kind of primary national religion which sort of just continuously improved things for women in society including permitting them to wear men's clothing in public you know to ease their daily tasks or their way of life so yeah the pantaloons the pantaloons exactly Uh, so the Tang Dynasty was regarded as you know very open very accepting for its time um Wu's reopening of the Silk Road encouraged a lot of cultural influence from Persia, India oh, yeah. and Syria. Yeah, so, I mean, women wearing men's clothing wasn't such a big head-turner at the time um, because there was other other stuff going on. There's an empire to build, you know. And it appeared that, like, women even had, like, a vague status, I might say. Like, a status during this era, which allowed them quite a lot of uh, artistic freedom um, in particular. So, yeah, the stage and kind of through the art of male impersonation, women were afforded this kind of... Yeah, a bit of status. A bit of root upwards. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that was the Tang Dynasty. So after that, we have the Song Dynasty, uh, where women continued to play quite prominent roles in the Chinese opera as performers, dancers, and musicians. Yes, uh, but always, uh, and we know this from uh, archival paintings and illustrations, and they wore distinctly male attire. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's this like silk painting, um, which I saw a picture of, uh, which depicts two female performers playing across from each other, portraying male roles, um, and they're kind of donning false beards uh, and male gowns and hats. Um, yeah, there are also these like clear female signifiers. Mm-hmm. So they're not trying to mask... It's, so it's interesting to have a, yeah, an illustration that has the visual signifiers that they are women playing male roles. So it was just in the painting that they have the female signifiers. A bit like the... I'm thinking about the painting of those two like lesbian pirates where they're always... Mm drawn with showing off their boobs yeah they wouldn't have done that actually but it was like just so you know these are secret ladies yeah well no they would in the theaters they would have um yeah they would have these little kind of signifiers um so that all the spec to allow the spectators to to realize they were watching women and playing men. yeah exactly right. yeah not to make it a secret from the audience yeah exactly it wasn't a secret these you know very deliberate objects of evidence left to remind the audience that the talents are that of a woman um you know one uh, even has a, so she has a fan on her back which labels her uh, moshe or male role so it clearly labels yeah, you know yeah, it's very yeah. brechtian in that like sense of 
I am a I'm For a some male reason, role. when you said they're wearing fake beards, you held up your hand uh, in front of you that made me think of those masks on the stick, like it would have been a cardboard <laughs> cutout of the beard that you just hold in front of your face, and then you take it away and you play a female role for a bit, and then you put it back on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. have a conversation with yourself like Victor that. Victoria. That's my only uh, association um, with, with a mask. With a, <laughs> with a fake, fake beard is just on a stick, yeah. yeah. So, unlike the performances during the Tang Dynasty, uh, which were held in the Emperor's Royal Courts, mm-hmm. uh, the Song Dynasty held public performances. Hooray! Right. Uh, of Chinese opera um, in theatres and, uh, you know, small performance areas in, in tea shops began to spring up, um, you know, to follow this, the growing demand for variety drama, mm. um, as it was then described. Variety shows, love it. Yeah, exactly. And this is super, like ages ago, this is way before... Um, way before anything we managed to do. Yeah, way before the, the Victorians. So these, yeah, these shows would include anything from dance, mime, uh, acrobatics, magic... Um, true variety, you know, quite similar to um, like circus, I think. And um, yeah, 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 yeah. And I think China, you know, even today, like Chinese opera is kind of still build in, you know, in venues that are traditional for for circus performances or can accommodate those kind of grand show? grand you... uh, theatrics. Um, you could say that you could, yeah, it is um, it is variety of performance. It's a lot more. There's probably a more pronounced definition for what distinguishes circus from variety mm. but i think it's just maybe like the larger spectacle or the amount of i don't know maybe equipment i don't know yeah i gotta look that up later yeah i'm good if you find out please do let me know uh yeah so i mean in a similar way to circus sometimes these variety um shows would incorporate um animals uh and generally it was generally just quite an impressive um spectacle so as i said male impersonation was beginning to provide quite a lot of status to women at this time but the opera was was still very much like a production of the elite you know even if the shows were for public consumption um the actual writers and creators were um still highly respected scholars um and the actors you know would require quite a lot of skills in order to partake in these performances uh the shows were written in uh, classical um chinese language um and it's around this time that yeah the the ancient Chinese um, practice of foot binding began. Mm-hmm. So this is all kind of wrapped, wrapped up, excuse the pun, uh, wrapped up in the same uh, time period. So foot binding was uh, was seen as a, a mark of beauty and status among um, for elite women during the Song Dynasty. Yeah, the women would be known for their lotus feet. Mm. Um, and so foot binding is the practice of breaking the feet of the young woman and then folding them to be smaller mm, yeah, and, and binding get... them tightly to hold the shape as the bones reform to have these tiny, tiny, like, in some cases, like, baby-like feet. Yeah. And it caused... Very infantile, yeah. ...pain for most women's entire lives. Yeah. To have these tiny, dainty feet that were considered in some way beautiful, but yeah. they were just deformed and painful. Yeah. So, you know, the, very much that was the price you paid for your art. And it was mm. very much... It started... It began um, in the, kind of, elite circles first, um, and then, kind of, gradually, you know, as with most, kind of, precious status symbols like there are that you know it does it did it filter down, down into the other social classes uh, after that so jumping ahead to uh 1205 mm-hmm. there were a series of um small-scale invasions dun, 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 which led to uh, china being uh ruled by um nomad uh, nomadic mongols uh, and the yuan dynasty was established mm-hmm. uh, by kublai khan uh, genghis khan's grandson hey um who served as the first emperor of the uh, yuan dynasty so during this time the landscape of of chinese opera uh, changed quite dramatically and uh, kublai khan uh, essentially got rid of the elite uh, no thank you and um did away with uh, the scholars who had previously uh, written for the royal courts um he was kind of having none of that and he insisted on a more colloquial language uh, to be used uh, in entertainment and theater in general um he he worked with or he made um whoever was kind of creating these plays be created with actors um so that to make the language more neutral more um yeah natural and accessible basically so they'd often use so they'd use, use song to do this a lot of the oh, time okay, cool. um in a similar way to like opera is a lot of opera is still written in quite a traditional italian or whatever like it's still written in in traditional language but through song and through it being staged yeah with action you would it becomes much more like accessible for the general public you can sort of just watch it and understand it yeah exactly i don't know what she's saying but she looks real sad yeah Yeah. exactly (laughs) yeah yeah painted tears yeah so give the people what they want could uh that's what i've written um do it yeah so just basically songs 
people will love it if there's songs. Uh, give us a jingle, we'll be happy. Oh man, trust me. So the use of more yeah simplistic everyday language meant that Chinese opera um, increased in popularity as an art form um, and could be enjoyed among all social classes. Hey. Um, happy days. So the songs were more free um, and incorporated a lot of yeah a lot of dance movements um, and acrobatics, which obviously appealed to the general public. Uh, as we it. are common simple folk who like car like physical theatre and people upside down exactly who doesn't love someone upside down uh, and it attracted large audiences from um, all walks of life uh, so how does this relate to male impersonation yeah. um, there is evidence to suggest that women uh, I did forget about that I was yeah. like yeah circuses tell me more circuses. no wait back to the topic <laughs> how do we make it uh, drag Anyway, uh, so there is evidence to suggest that uh, women were extremely uh, were extremely respected in Chinese theatre during the Yuan Dynasty, um, and the performances uh, the performance of gender as a form of art itself took centre stage. Yeah, women would often portray male military roles um, mm. as a way of demonstrating their mastery of acrobatics or martial arts. And some of the most so some of the most respected roles that a woman could play uh, could be uh, old man. A classic, absolute classic. Old Man in the Shed. Old Man in the Shed. Uh, Geppetto in the leather. Uh, <laughs> old Man, a classic. Martial arts master or military personnel. So obviously these are really, yeah, these are cool roles for, uh, for so women. So like, they, that would be the most revered role. If you get chosen to play Old Man, you're like, oh, what an honour. Yeah, because nice. they would be the most respected in society. Right. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, painted face roles, uh, which often represented a kind of uh, mighty male uh, in the opera or like a more like rough a and or like a... yeah well a bit more like rough and tough type okay yeah type of character um yeah very like physically able and a little bit yeah a little bit rogue and Generally. even even the role of uh, monkey king which was a sort of league what? of its own um so there are t- certain um operas which are about uh yeah monkey king which is a yeah, kind of warrior figure Amazing. um and these are all painted face roles so these rely heavily on a lot of makeup and um very kind of intricate um very recognizable costumes as well like archetypes of something so you'll be painted as the something character yeah. and as the something character. Yeah, yeah, yeah people will know who you are based on yeah okay cool similar to like if you have say like punch and judy yeah. like mr punch is a is an archetypal character yeah. he's not just one but there'll be multiple yeah. multiple variations there'll be a but devil know him a because he has a big nose and he's got this like Exactly. Stick or whatever. Yeah. So in in Chinese opera, like ancient Chinese opera, they wouldn't use um, masks necessarily, but they would use uh, they would paint a face. Yeah. yeah, Instead. So yeah. As a result of uh, their artistic achievements as male impersonators, uh, their status improved uh, in their off-stage lives as well. Mm, Um, So the women, uh, these women, were able to access literary education, um, Mm. which would otherwise have been denied or reserved for men. And so in this way, uh, theatrical male impersonation was a way of uh, transgressing the traditional cultural restraints that women faced in ancient China. And it was a, yeah, a way of being seen um, and not, not, ne- not necessarily as an equal, but like as a man, mm-hmm. simply as a man. Um, so they were afforded, you know, given uh, the pri- all the privileges and opportunities that kind of came with that because they were considered to be on par with men because they were impersonating yeah. and embodying masculinity. Okay, yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. It's more like an acknowledgement of how well they can play a man. Mm, being yeah. like, and so rather is it is it that people purposefully consciously did that or was it more like unconsciously people would associate the performer with the male character that they were playing and being like, Oh, it's old man Bob. Hey old man Bob, here, yeah. come to the library. Yeah, and there was so a lot of um, it was quite trendy for um, actresses uh, at the time to wear their the male clothes in their in their everyday lives yeah. as well. So they would sort of you know adopt those privilege you know they would have yeah. those privileges um, as the kind of ace up their sleeve, okay. up their very right. tailored masculine sleeve. So actors, I mean, in general, weren't really actors were still pretty much seen as like definitely much more of a lower ranking in terms of class um, by the Mongols at this time. And uh, were often distrusted uh, because essentially they built a career on not being themselves. So um, it started to get kind of bad for um, for actresses and for women um, and male impersonators. Um, so women oh. and their bodies were like becoming like heavily sexualized through this. Uh, at this time, it was becoming pretty much like impossible for them to be judged purely on their artistic 
uh, abilities. Mm-hmm. There's one account of a, an actress portraying a painted face, uh, the painted face role of a military character, Yu Qigong, uh, whose traditional costume depicts uh, a bare chest. Um, and the actress, Zhou Chu, was actually heckled by a wealthy audience member uh, to show her breasts. So it didn't matter that she had a low, sonorous voice, or it didn't matter that her body type uh, lent itself to quite an uh, effective male impersonation. Anyway, and so... It didn't matter that she was on stage performing... No, it didn't matter. ...a very clear piece of theatre. Exactly. just like, get your tits Get your tits out, out yeah. Did. Because they, people, you know, people couldn't separate a, a woman's body on stage from the art of male impersonation... Um, anyway, apparently she rose to the challenge and stripped to her waist, but tactfully used uh, the long beard prop that came with the role of uh, this military uh, Yu Qigong. Yeah, she was able to use this ginormous beard to kind of cover herself and and kind nice. of say fuck. I was you. hoping she'd invited him on, st- on invited him on stage for a like a throwdown <laughs> or like some kind of sword fight and beat the shit out of yeah, him. Yeah, and then she no. sliced him into a thousand pieces. Yay! Yay! Um, in the end. I don't know if that happened. Uh, I hope it did. Yeah. So. By the uh, Qing dynasty in uh, 1644, women were banned from the public stage altogether. So things really, you know... It took a turn. It really took a turn for the worst. And they became further repressed because they didn't have this, this wonderful space to wear trousers and, and beards. Yeah, because this is... And this is where um, the uh, sort of female impersonation grew in popularity. Women were just not there. And so men had to stand in as... Uh, there was a lot of female impersonation. So young male actors were trained in the art of in- imitating women because they weren't allowed on stage. Uh, so they would, you know, these young male actors uh, were trained in kind of mimicking their mannerisms, uh, the way they walked. Um, so they would add wooden blocks to their shoes to recreate the effects of having uh, bound feet. And soon, yeah, so that was... So this, so 1644, they were banned from public stages. And then very soon after, um, women were banned from the Beijing stage completely. Just not even, you know, private shows were not allowed, which included... Um, so yeah, all private performances with women were banned. Government officials uh, were later even forbidden to visit female prostitutes because it was seen as a type of uh, performance. performance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not genuinely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. In it was love seen with as you. a yeah. It's a performance. So um, it, yeah, it would be very bad news for a kind of official person to uh, be caught um, with a female prostitute. Wow. Uh, yeah, male prostitutes uh, were never against the law. All right, gigolos. Um, exactly. Oh, so yeah. yeah, so these very particular brothels started appearing called Zhangong uh, Tansi. Uh, or the house of female boys, yeah. and in this these sounds like a gateway to possibly pederastry. So in these kind of in these Shangong Tansi young boys, uh, uh, costumed as women, costumed as women from the Chinese opera. Mm. So it's a very particular, very um, particular get-up. kind of woman. Yeah, and uh, they would be paid for sex by other men. Um, and these boys, they were trained. They were trained in the art of um, female impersonation, and, and many apparently went on to become professional performers. Gosh. So they were really, you know, they were really trained to to imitate um you know this these women from fr- you know who from traditional theater mm. who were had been well respected but like this yeah this basically only kind of fueled society's uh, impression of the theater tropes and like their disdain for like actors as a whole because they were like oh you're just you know you're just male prostitutes and that was kind of where the association started to kind of lie um the actors are um a seedy bunch yeah that was um, kind of, of on par of with like... yeah about the kind of over-sexual nature of it for some reason. And I've always sort of wondered where that came from, apart from the fact that you always find the gay bars behind the theatres in every city. Like, that was my only association, but, yeah. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, China's approach to gender reversal was, like, very complicated in the early 20th century. Like, on one hand, like, like actors are uh, disliked for the ways they underpin the truth of masculinity and femininity through performance. And on the other hand, like, it's encouraged because it's somewhat, like... it's a distraction from like the blatant homosexuality or like yeah homosexual tendencies and, and acts that they were they were engaging with at the time. So it was like oh I'm not this is a this is a trained a trained to be this a woman. Is, this, this is, is a definitely trained a woman. boy prostitute. This is a child tra- boy prostitute who impersonates a woman on stage and has had sex with lots of your military officials it's because a wa- they couldn't yeah. visit a woman. And that is therefore <laughs> better than. A, it being a woman. It being just a woman on stage. Yeah, they'd sort of really, really and repressed they... women so far that they had to use. Yeah. Wow. 
Anyway, so in the late uh, Qing uh, dynasty, women were seen protesting in male garments as a way of declaring their status to be equal mm. to men. Uh, and this was kind of the actually the first stirrings of the um, Chinese feminist movement. So by the early 1900s, it was uh, it was trendy again for female actresses to wear men's clothes. It was seen as quite, you know, risque and a bit, you know, quite politicised. You know, the Chinese new woman, all of that. So it was very yeah trendy for female actresses uh, to wear men's clothes, both on and off stage. Mm. So they powered through and because it, it was yeah it was basically seen as a way of like undermining the patriarchy of the time. Um, and the restrictions that society placed on women. So cross-dressing and male impersonation became like this act of protest and rebellion. So women were recalled to have spoken vulgarities in the street, um, like men, uh, even wore filthy clothes and flirted with prostitutes, like men. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it was very much about like the behaviour they uh, yeah they adopted, not just this visual impersonation. Oh, yeah. So it became so male impersonation just became this political act, and it was really kind of radical um, in the early nineteen hundreds. And the the final person uh, that I want to tell you about is uh, Qin Jin, uh, who was a female revolutionary um, at the time, uh, known for her political um, her radical political activism. Um, have you heard Have you heard of no. her? No, she sounds awesome and. Yeah, I encourage you to, to read a bit more. But she was kind of famous for leading a lot of like anti-Qing uh, uh, uprisings. Um, she would often be seen carrying a, a short sword um, and obviously dressed in men's clothing. Nice. And apparently even practiced bomb making. Uh, and I mean, dangerous, but do what you gotta do, girl. Do what you gotta do, girl. And uh, and marksmanship. Um, so, pow, 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 bang, bang. If you're gonna have a gun, you have to practice. You do have okay? to practice. You shouldn't just have it and just be like, I'll just know what to do when the time comes. Can't be reckless with that. There the are, range. There are bombs here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, definitely not one to mess with. Um, no, I don't want to. So, she uh, left her husband and continued her education in Japan where she was kind of allowed a lot more uh, freedom to kind of work and so feminism and nationalism are actually quite closely uh, linked in um, in sort of ancient China and certainly around this time in the kind of early 1900s so she kind of went to Japan kind of formulated all these plans in order to you know save save the empire and save save her country and make it more accepting and equality gender equality was definitely like part of that mm. like equal society was seen as a strong society wanted to kind of move it more back to and therefore if we're going to be the best country in the world we have to have a more equal society to prove how much more advanced we are than everyone else yeah exactly yeah. a much more inclusive society you know similar to um the empress Wu. you know having the silk roads open in order to get you know cultural trade and blah 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 so uh yeah she left her so chin jin left her husband went to japan um and started to kind of form all of her kind of solidify her kind of political ideas before returning to china in order to lead the p political groups um, and she would always be, you know, she was speaking out about uh, arranged, mar um, arranged marriages uh, and just generally, like, patriarchal oppression, mm. and she was just, like, a bit fierce. Um, she publicly rejected feminine role models and preferred heroes in the martial arts, obviously, given her own affiliation with tiny swords. Tiny swords and bombs. Tiny swords and bombs. Um, she's often referred to as uh, the Chinese Joan of Arc. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I was thinking about that, yeah. And tragically... Uh, Chin Jin was uh, brutally executed, Jesus no surprise, uh, in 1907, uh, after being tortured um, and eventually beheaded in her hometown, very publicly, for her, you know for her leadership in an anti-Qing uprising. So despite being tortured, she refused to give up her information, um, but she was eventually prosecuted when the authorities used evidence for her in writing against her, basically mm. trying to prove she was involved in this like assassination plot, uh, which, let's, let's be honest, she probably was. I mean, yeah, maybe, but, like... She dabbled. Is it such a bad thing? Maybe, I don't know, who knows? Well, it's... Oh, I mean, it's an easy, easy shot, isn't it? Like, oh, blame the woman with the sword and making bombs. Yeah, she's causing a lot of women to feel like they're allowed to do things. So let's also say that she wants to assassinate somebody important. Yeah, and she wrote a lot... Off with her head. Yeah, off with her head. She wrote a lot of poetry, and they were like, oh, this is terrible, this is very... You're also she's a bad a... poet. <laughs> poetry was quite nice. Okay, not that um, kind of terrible, then. Yeah, poetry was quite nice, but they, they used her writing, whether it was... Um, I don't know, like, political manifestos or poetry, but they used it against her, and um, she was 
yeah, executed because of it. Um, such bullshit. So even though this uh, particular uprising ultimately failed, Qin was is still regarded as one of the most iconic figures of the of the Chinese New Woman movement, mm-hmm. a spearhead for feminism and uh, and poetry, as I mentioned. Yeah, I highly recommend that you go read a bit more about her and her life because yeah, she, she sounds, sounds so fascinating. really fascinating. Um, and I think the New York Times actually wrote a like a belated, severely belated obituary and published it kind of posthumously uh, yeah, they, they, they did they, I think they have an ongoing series of like obituaries for people that were important but missed over during their time for yeah. whatever reason yeah, um, yeah yeah I think that's quite important to do actually yeah no definitely she um she uh they they did that kind of yeah retrospectively and I think it's um it's nice and I want to um read the full article that was amazing. Evidence of male impersonation as a political and necessary act from the long time way back, uh, the dawn of drag king. The dawn of the drag queen. That was amazing. So good. 600 AD. And I guess if by 600 AD, 600 and whatever AD, it was a refined enough practice to be in opera, it must have just been like an ongoing practice for like... As long as people have been performing for each other, you know, for entertainment purposes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it just proves that it's not, it's not in any way new, right? No. But I really want to ask, how does Mulan fit into this? Because she dresses up as a a man to get into the the war. To the army, yeah. Yeah. So is, that's like male impersonation, right? That's always been a a core concept of the folk tale of Mulan. Mm Mm-hmm. When is that? Because I, I, it's an old folk tale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that would have been in, um, sort of set around, like, yeah, the the Qing dynasty. So, so that the would early be six hundred slash seven hundred. Yeah. Time so period. that's when you know women were starting to be a lot more um, repressed, but like the art of male impersonation would fairly well common. established. Yeah, well established also, before that. It was well established that as a male impersonator, you gain the respect that you didn't have yeah, yeah, yeah. as a female impersonator. Um, yeah, and it's very much yeah the um, the the legend of um, of of Mulan Ha Mulan um, was taken from from the yeah the dynasties like the old traditional folk you know it's based on folk legend. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. This was against the let me have a little look. Oh, you looking at up looking it up right now? I'm having a look. Yeah, scholars are divided on whether Mulan was a, a real person or a fictional character of legend, but either way, it sounds Her like doesn't, it doesn't there's a lot of yeah, well. there's some really fierce like. Um, female warriors in Chinese history from these, you know, from the the 4th to the 6th century AD. Yeah, Princess Pingyang, I think, is um, another person who I didn't mention, I didn't get a chance to mention, and obviously Empress Wu. There's a lot of strong female um, characters. And, of course, the history of women in theatre portraying male roles, like, it was was kind of like a a kind of a fallback revert to option. Yeah. I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's loads, I'm sure that, yeah, I'm sure there's absolutely loads of, yeah, queer articles about, um, about Mulan and about, um, kind of early, yeah, drag kinging, which I encourage you to go and look up and um, let us know if you find out anything that we don't, we haven't managed to cover. That's really great. Thank you so much, Daisy. That's been absolutely fascinating as always. Thank you. So if you want to get us on social media with your ideas or your thoughts or your feelings about Mulan and how amazing she is or furries and all the history of drag king across the world uh, you can get in touch with us on social media at radio zaddy radio the normal way zaddy x-a-d-d-y uh instagram and on twitter what's our wordpress uh radio zaddy.wordpress uh you can find the link on our uh, our anchor page uh, and wherever you find wherever you have found us or well thank you for being here and come find us next time thank you very much for listening and we'll see you again soon take care bye-bye. bye bye bye